innovative, often duplicated. When enough people get on the trend, I elevate it. Make it way harder for them to follow what I take. It hard to swallow like a lozenger lodged in your trachea. Goodness gracious, bruh, I can never make this up. So just take your stuff, rake it up, and take the bus. Never fake the funk, you painted skunks. You played enough, I'm lifting bars to outer space, so the weight is up. Fight. It is a rare jujitsu event that makes me as excited as Kasai Pro on December 9th does. That's not just because two of our favorite athletes and our sponsored fighters, Junio Casio and Caitlin Huggins, are on the card. It's because of the way they've designed the event, from the tournament structure to the rule set for the super fights, which are designed to both showcase actual grappling ability and effectiveness, as well as entertainment value for the fans. There are a ton of other reasons I'm really excited for this. They've recruited some of the best athletes in the sport. I'm sure that you've heard Yuri Samoas is going to take on Gordon Ryan in the top-level super fight main event, and I couldn't be more excited for that. But some of the other matches on the card are going to be outstanding as well. There are standalone matches, like our own Caitlin Huggins taking on Raquel Pa'aluhi Canuto, who is a very accomplished gi, no-gi grappler as well as an MMA fighter. But there's also a tournament format that's going to crown their first-ever lightweight champion at 155 pounds. The way that they've structured this tournament, which you'll hear more about in our featured interview with Kasai CEO Rich Byrne in a second, is really exciting. And it's a really interesting format where they've invited eight grapplers, and they're going to divide those grapplers into two pods of four. Now, if you're in a pod of four, you're going to compete with every other person in your group, which means if it's you, Gianni Grippo, AJ Agazarm, or Enrico Coco, you're going to compete against all three of them. This is a really innovative format that promises to be entertaining. I don't know about you, but one of my least favorite things about grappling tournaments is when I'm really excited to see what one person can do, and they get matched up against a beast in the first round, and I never get to see them compete again. So that's not going to be what Kasai is like. It's an experiment that is designed to enhance mainstream appeal for jiu-jitsu, and I'm really enthusiastic about its success. I'm also really excited for our featured interview this week with Kasai CEO Rich Byrne. Rich didn't just talk to us about Kasai Pro, but we did cover a wide variety of topics. We talked about what matches on the card he's looking forward to most, and what tournament matchups he hopes happen in that 155-pound bracket that we talked about. We also discussed why the Kasai Pro's format promises to be entertaining and why they made some of the choices that they did. We also covered what he thought of Junio Casio's performance to qualify. As you'll hear in the interview, seven of the eight competitors got invites, but they also held a separate qualifying tournament where you had to compete against several grapplers who were accomplished in their own right, and Junie won his way into the tournament. So we talked to, to Rich about what he thought about Junie's performance as well as what he expects to see from Junie in this tournament. We also talked to him about some of the other competitors and why we both think Celso Vinicius is criminally underrated. He's one of the competitors as well. We talked about getting women on the Kasai card and a potentially future women's tournament for Kasai, as well as what he thinks about the equal pay for BJJ movement. But we also talked about Rich's own jiu-jitsu journey. He's a black belt and an accomplished one, and we talked to him about who he thinks is far and away the top mind in the sport, what he thinks of the Barambolo, and that answer might surprise you, and about his early days training, which include stories about training with the Fertitta brothers, with Henzo Gracie, with Middle Eastern royalty, and with John Donaher. We also discussed how he hopes Kasai will change the landscape of jiu-jitsu. In this episode of Dirty White Belt Radio, we cover a lot of ground with CEO of Kasai, Rich Byrne. I'm grateful to Rich for taking the time, and I couldn't be more excited to see how Kasai turns out. You can join me in watching it live on Flow Grappling, or you can attend live in New York City. With that, here's our featured interview. Hey, Jeff Shaw. Hey, Betsy O'Donovan. I was browsing the geese online at torobjj.com the other day. And what did you see? I saw a new Jeff Shaw gi and it got me to thinking. I think a lot of people are curious how different gi designs happen and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. A lot of people start with color. I don't. I start with design elements that I want to include and every gi I want to have a theme. Something that has a little little Easter egg that only the people that are in the know know about. For this gi, I used to live in Okinawa and I'm really fascinated with Okinawan culture, particularly because the culture is so linked to the martial arts. And so I came up with a few images that I thought were just generally cool looking, but that also fit the themes that jujitsu people think about a lot, like honor, loyalty, dignity. And then we came up with a really cool purple color to throw on top of it. I was a purple belt at the time. 
Well, you can check that gi out as well as uh, a lot of other fantastic and comfortable gis at tourbjj.com. Thanks for supporting our friends. So to start the conversation, I, I definitely want to talk to you about your own journey in jiu-jitsu. But let's start by talking about Kasai and the first pro tournament that you all are, are having on December 9th. What inspired you to start Kasai and how did you start how and, and how did you decide you wanted to do professional grappling? Well, uh, good question. Um, so I've been around the sport for a long time. You know, we can cover maybe some of the backstory a little bit, but you know, I want to give back to it. I also think there's so much more jujitsu could be. I mean, think about the growth. Uh, I'll go on a tangent for a second, but think about the growth of the sport. I don't know about you. I don't know about uh, North Carolina. I'm pretty sure it's probably similar to like every other city in the U.S. where you go on Google and you're going to, you know, whenever I travel, um, you know, there's always three, four, five, six, seven jujitsu places pop up, you know, proximate to virtually anywhere I ever go on business or, or on trips, even internationally. So, uh, you know, it's a fast growing sport. It's super exciting. It's, uh, you know, intellectually engaging. Uh, some of the, you know, best athletes in the world do the sport. You look at how UFC has, you know, come become part of mainstream, you know, sports in the United States. And then you say, well, jujitsu is nowhere, it's nowhere in, in, on any of those radar screens. And, uh, you know, we wanted to bring, you know, the level of uh, professionalism of a tournament and production values. And, you know, it's almost like every jujitsu tournament uh, is always like conscious of, you know, there's not a lot of money in it. So let's manage these things by, you know, you know, really cutting tight on the cost side and blah, blah, blah. Um, because otherwise you're going to lose money. And, uh, you know, but maybe there's a way to drive it, you know, by just getting more eyeballs. And, and so that, that's the vision, um, is to make the sport through a rule set, through the way it's produced, you know, through the quality of the athletes where, uh, you can broaden your audience beyond just people that do jujitsu. I mean, UFC, they always say that people, it's a universal sport. It's fighting. Everybody understands what fighting is. Well, jujitsu is fighting. It shouldn't be that hard, but you know, I feel like, you know, there's certain aspects. Nobody ever really kind of understands the score. Um, uh, some of it's art, you know, and, uh, and a lot of these tournaments just have matches and then the one guy gets his hand raised, but it doesn't mean anything. There's no belt, you know, there's no, you're not competing for anything. There's just like interesting matchups. So, Anyway, I'm, maybe I'm drifting off a little bit, but the you know short answer to your question is I think that could all be done better, and I think jujitsu deserves a platform that's uh, you know done in a way that can help it help the sport to you know with its exponential growth uh, of practitioners or people doing it can also achieve a similar type growth in the people that want to watch it at the pro level. For this pro event on December 9th, you certainly attracted some of the biggest names and most exciting grapplers to watch in Gordon Ryan and Yuri Shimoas and in everybody who's participating in your eight-man lightweight tournament. So I'm curious, on that card, what match or potential match between the eight guys that are competing for your inaugural lightweight belt, what match or potential match are you personally most excited to watch? Wow, that's a good question. Um, that's sort of like a uh, parent choosing, you know, between their kids or something. <laughs> I, I, uh, um, first of all, the feature fight uh, with with Gordon and Yuri, think about it. Hollis and I, uh, hopefully we'll get the opportunity at some point to talk to Hollis. Uh, we're talking about it. I mean, these are two guys that uh, each of them won their weight division in, in ADCC this, you know, just a month ago. Um, these are probably two of the top, maybe three or four uh, guys that compete in the absolute category in the world, um, and they get a chance to uh, you know fight against each other. There's also a little backstory there um, uh, where Gordon actually won the last time they fought. Yuri might have not been at, or at least according to him, he may not have been at full strength, and this time's going to be different. Um, Gordon's been almost unstoppable. Yuri is, uh, you know, got his great reputation. So, I mean, I think that'll be a really cool fight. Uh, uh, just 
you know, away from everything else. Um, but as far as the tournament is concerned, let, let me answer the question this way. Um, of all the tournaments, of all the different promotions out there, um, I think, a, we think that a tournament is a different level of, you know, excitement. Uh, why? Because there's eight guys that start and one guy at the end gets to hold the belt. Unlike in MMA, where you have, you know, a tournament is basically over, even those early UFCs were over a couple of days. But, you know, in MMA, you get poked in the eye and, you know, you're bleeding and you can't actually have a tournament in one day. But in jiu-jitsu, you can. And literally in one day, you can go through a, you know, whole tournament format and uh, crown a winner. EBI does that. But they do it in an elimination um, structure. And, you know, we're doing it in two brackets where everybody gets to fight everybody in their bracket. So this is not one of those deals where, you know, a guy flies in from California, loses his first match, he has to go home. You're going to get to see your favorite fighters fight against everybody in their bracket. And then the winners of the bracket gets to fight each other for the gold and the second place in the bracket for the, for the, for the bronze. I mean, that's so before we even talk about individual matchups, um, you know, the, just the fact that you're going to see, you know, these great athletes, compete because I always think that you know you I'm I'm interested in your experience as well in jiu-jitsu I think one of the things that makes a jiu-jitsu guy great is the ability to adapt you know your game to the style of who you're competing against right so if you're just showing up like Gordon and Yuri are to fight each other you know they're going to train for that guy Um, but how do you train for seven guys I mean that's hard Uh, so you know there's a lot of audibles being called for lack of a better word. There's a lot of, you know, game, game moment decisions. And I think, you know, to me, that's a, that's a way to test, uh, you know, the skill of an athlete. And then lastly, you know, we're doing it in six minute, six minute rounds. None of this nonsense with, you know, standing on your feet and stalling. Uh, we're not, we're not gonna, uh, score advantages, which, you know, as undoubtedly, you know, and a lot of these, Jiu-jitsu tournaments, fans, even the competitors have to some of the time don't even know if they won or lost because they're not sure they're not sure they understand the advantages and how how they were arbitrarily and some were you know given and then withdrawn. I mean, it's sort of taking some of that nonsense mystique out of jujitsu and just like the guy who did better wins. And you know, if you're not giving your all for this full six minutes, you're probably not going to be the guy whose hand's getting raised at the end. So uh, I think the tournament format is what I'm most looking forward to. Um, I think it lends itself most to, I mean, well, let's say it this way, to talk about the people. Gary Tonin, it's hard not to think of him as, uh, you know, one of the guys who has the best chance of, you know, prevailing, given that he just walked through the EBI, the last EBI, basically every EBI he's been in. Um, submissions, uh this is not a sub only tournament it's points, but submissions get a higher point value if you win by submission. So, um, you know, clearly he's got a great submission game. So, you know, you gotta, you gotta view him as one of the top contenders, but boy, as you said, is the rest of the field, you know, uh, good. I mean, this thing can go in any direction. I mean, let's, let's talk about some of these other guys. Um, have you ever watched Celso? Celsino is one of my favorite all-time grapplers, and I and he is criminally underrated and underappreciated, so I'm thrilled. To I totally him. agree. Glad you said that. The first thing I, I know Hollis knows, knows uh, Celsino. Uh, I call him Celso. But, yeah. uh, uh, um, Don't tell him I said that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I know Hollis knows him well, and the first thing I said when we decided to do 155, uh, as Aiden knows, is make sure we get, we get Celsino. Uh, if there's anything we can do, uh, because I agree with you. I think every matchup with him is going to be very interesting, and I'm really looking forward to seeing him and Gary. I have, thankfully, you know, blessed somewhat. I get the opportunity in New York area to train with some of these guys, like, you know, not a lot, but, you know, here or there with Gary. I've trained with um, Gianni. Gianni Grippo, another super underrated guy. I, I mean, I've, I assume you've followed his career a little bit. Mm-hmm, certainly. You know, Gianni has fought the best of the best in the world. Um, and uh, he really has just not the acclaim. Maybe he hasn't won the biggest of the big tournaments, but for whatever reason, he wasn't invited to ADCC this year. Uh, uh, but I think, uh, you know, I, 
any matchup, uh, he's one of those guys that can make your game just look bad. Um, um, no particular order. AJ Agazam, we love putting him in the tournament only because, for a couple of reasons. One, obviously, he made it to the finals in ADCC, and he's great. Uh, but the other reason is people love to hate this guy, and we love. You know, it's certainly not a bad thing to have a little drama in your tournament, right? I would imagine not. And you you mentioned the tournament format, which I want to revisit in a couple ways. Like this was one of the things I was most intrigued about. Because as you say, it's lame when a great grappler flies across the country, loses a match, you don't get to see that great grappler again. It's equally lame when the brackets have two guys that might well be the final, and they match up in like the octafinal or whatever, and you're like, ah, it feels so anticlimactic. And so it's right. cool that everybody's going to get to match up against against everybody. That's that's a very exciting. Well, and well, but just to be clear, everybody gets to match up and everybody in their bracket. So not every there's eight guys. Eight guys, you would have too many fights. You'd have to have seven fights. I mean, that's not <laughs> realistic. So, uh, so you will fight everybody in your bracket. So you're, and if you advance, you're fighting, you know, the one guy in the other bracket. So you're going to have four. If you win, if you come in first, second, third, or fourth, you will fight four different four of the other seven guys. Everybody else will fight a minimum of three of the other seven guys. And so there are eight competitors. And from my understanding, you invited seven of those competitors and one competitor won his way in through a qualifying tournament, which was itself a rigorous qualifying tournament with some, some names. And obviously I'm talking about Junio Casio. And so, yeah. So, so I'm curious about two things and I'd like to talk about Junio a little bit. First, how did you make the decision to do a qualifying tournament and what did you think of Junie's performance in that qualifying tournament against black belts? Well, let's hit the second one first. Uh, Junie killed it. Junie won four matches, three of them by submission. Everybody, I think, looked past the guy. Um, you know, Junie trains out of, of Unity. I'm, hopefully you know his story a little bit. And, you know, Unity has Paulo and Joao and Murillo. I don't think Junie's like, you know, like you know, like anybody like thinks of the guy. And, I, you know, he's looking for his shot. Junie called us to sort of make his case to me in the qualifier. And we said, sold, you know, you're in. Don't worry. We love you. And he said, yeah, you know, uh, I thank you for the opportunity. He must have sent us 20 messages. Thanks for the opportunity. Uh, because he's looking for his breakout moment. He's sort of living under the wing of like a lot of the guys he trains with. But he trains with these guys every day. And he's. You know, every one of them, uh, Paulo Meow and Marillo said, you know, long overdue, well-deserved. Thank, finally, other people in the world will see what we get to see on a daily basis. So, and, and, you know, I think there were other fighters in the tournament that, you know, probably had similar type stories and credentials. But really the guy with the, you know, the storyline, the maybe I'm sort of glad it ended out this way because, you know, it really kind of have a soft spot for him is Junie. I mean, it's a really interesting story. Uh, why did we have the uh, pro qualifier for the very reason we did? I uh, love the idea that, you know, um, somebody presumably in the New York area, because it's a local tournament, you know, get a chance to compete with these, you know, these other, these other monsters uh, where they'd never get invited otherwise. And, you know, to discover the undiscovered. We're doing an amateur tournament, and uh, it's nice to have one mat, you know, devoted to this and, um, you know, kind of bring the local community into it as well and, you know, find the next new talent. I mean, think of it in different ways. UFC kind of does that when they do the, the Ultimate Fighter show, right? But we don't have to go through all the nonsense of putting your guys in a house and having them do tequila shots. <laughs> we can just have them fight, um, and uh, you know, same outcome. So we're gonna, we're hoping to do that in every tournament. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it certainly is an exciting way to, as you say, get a dark horse, get an underdog, and you know, Junie going in being the lightest guy as well as someone that somewhat flies under the radar screen is a great underdog story to see him go up against some of the. You know, a, someone, someone like Tonin, who's arguably the best no-gi grappler in the world. We mentioned Gianni Grippo. We mentioned Celso Vinicius. Mantra Kara's in this tournament. Enrico Coco. Just a ton of illustrious names with so many achievements. Yeah, it's, unfortunately, Juni is light. So, I mean, he's got a couple of... Talk about an underdog. I mean, not only did he qualify, you know, off of the you know, he's a, you know, off the radar screen of, uh, of these professional athletes... But, you know, these guys, these guys are bigger than him, clearly. I mean, I don't know if you saw the picture. 
Aiden posted on Instagram, I, I barely weigh 160. And I look like a mom. I look giant compared to Junie. And I do think that's what, you know, as someone that's, that's trained with Junie a bit, like, I do think that's part of why people, I think, unjust, unjustifiably look past Junie and they assume that that 20, 30 pounds of muscle is going to matter. And of course it matters, right? It's a factor. But I think that, you know, assuming that that means you will get the victory is is often a mistake that people make when they when they face him. So I'm, I'm very excited to see him match up against some of the bigger athletes. I would love to see him match up with AJ, with AJ's, you know, wrestling and top game going up against Junior's relentless submission attacks. And I mean, I guess that's why you same, have the same. Yeah, I think, I think matches for him uh, that I agree with that matchup. I'd love to see that. I'd love to see him and Enrico Coco. Um, it'll remind me a little of... Uh, Enrico fighting, uh, you know, Eddie Cummings. I don't know if you saw any of their prior matches. Uh, Enrico's got, is like an escape artist around leg locks and obviously a very talented fighter. Uh, him against Gianni. I mean, I, I think of those as like the three least big guys in the tournament, maybe. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the combinations are endless. I mean, I, you know, really excited to see some of these. Grapplers, there are a lot of different rule sets out there, but you know the only pure rule set there is? True submission only. And you know the only tournament organization to run true no-time-limit submission only? It's U.S. Grappling. And December 9th, true submission only U.S. Grappling comes back to Richmond, Virginia. Register early at usgrappling.com and get on out there for no-time-limits, no-points, and no-excuses. usgrappling.com to register December 9th. So one thing I noticed, so you had an amateur tournament in October, and this is your first mm-hmm. pro card, and uh, your amateur tournament was mixed gender. I'm curious, like, because I, I look at this matchup and the exciting style and the exciting rule set, and I think of some of the women at ADCC that I watched um, and who put on some of the most exciting matches. And I'm wondering, is there a Kasai plan to do a, a, a pro women's card, or have you not thought behind the, the first, have you not well, thought behind the yeah, first Yeah, we, we want to get our first tournament under our belt, but um, we... We're also putting on uh, seven or eight undercard fights uh, as part of this uh, December 9th, and uh, we haven't made all the matches yet, but you should assume that there's going to be some female uh, athletes uh, amongst that, and we also have another feature fight to announce, and, uh, you know, it's a question of timing sometimes. A couple of the logical people that, uh, a couple in several cases, were women um you know, have scheduling or injury or other issues. So sometimes you can't always, you know, put together what you want to put together. But uh, at least for now, we're thinking of the tournament, maybe the tournament is a men's tournament, but the, uh, you know, the other fights that we're going to show are going to be men and women. And then, yes, uh, there's absolutely no reason we shouldn't do a, we can't do a women's tournament. I think there's a lot of great talent out there. Frankly, we're just focused on December 9th right now, but uh, that is definitely that, that is definitely a possibility down the line. You know, and I want to ask this particularly because you you have a strong business background. A lot a hot topic lately has been equal pay for BJJ with Dominica, who lives in New York, talking about that. And I'm just curious, like as someone with a business background, as somebody that has a, I know a deep respect for women grapplers, what do you think about that movement and the movement to? sort of make sure that women athletes in jiu-jitsu get paid equally to men athletes in jiu-jitsu? Well, first of all, Dominique is a good friend. She trains at our gym, and uh, I think she's extraordinary. Um, and she's probably the most decorated athlete in in the sport. Uh, and the fact that she's a woman, a woman if that means uh, – if that means – that, at least in the Kasai promotion, that does not mean you get paid less money. Uh, we want the best athletes in the sport and, uh, uh, we're going to, you know, reward the people that, uh, can deliver for, for us and, and put on great fights and win our tournaments, etc. cetera, uh, regardless of whether they're men or women. So, uh, I absolutely believe that, um, this is a look, look at, look at the numbers of people that are practitioners. I mean, there's always more men than women, but there's an enormous, uh, um, and growing uh, contingent of women across the sport at the amateur and the pro levels, 
we want our promotion to reflect that. And we're certainly not looking for a shortcut to do it by, you know, by uh, shortchanging anybody. This is a, a co-export and, um, you know, as far as we're concerned, the, the pay is uh, on the same scale either way. Christmas is coming, and it's time to get gifts for the grappler in your life. Every year at DirtyWhiteBelt.com on the blog, we have a grappler's gift guide, and we want your suggestions, so be sure and tell us what you want for Christmas. But I'll tell you, on ToroBJJ.com right now, I see a bunch of things that would be really useful, including a Toro BJJ dress belt, a brand-new Toro gi, or some of the sweet rash guards you can get from the best people with the best customer service around. Stop online at ToroBJJ.com, and be sure to watch DirtyWhiteBelt.com for our grappler's gift guide this year. So folks can see the tournament in person December 9th in New York City, and they can watch it live on Flow Grappling, which is exciting for folks that are um, that are that are extended out through the world. And so I want to transition just a little and talk to you about your own journey, because I understand you have you know you've been in the game a long time. You're a black belt, and I understand you have a pretty interesting story about how you got started in jujitsu. Yeah, I just got my uh, my stripe yesterday, so I. Uh, yeah, I've been doing this for a long time, about 12 years. Um, I, uh, um, you know, my story is actually really interesting. I'll try not to embellish it or bore you with uh, a longer version. I'll give you the shorter version, but, um, I've always been a very active, you know, uh, you know, in sports of different kinds. Uh, my, my sport actually growing up in high school and college was running. Uh, it was never combat sports of any kind, but I ended up having a, a hip injury, a hip arthroscopy. And my doctor basically told me I can't run anymore. Uh, it didn't, it hurt a lot too, uh, to figure out something else. And, you know, frustratingly I did some triathlon, so I did some swimming and, you know, that wasn't holding my interest and it's getting kind of depressed. I, uh, uh, one of my long-term clients, uh, back in those days, I, I'm an investment banker by, by profession for many years. Uh, was Frank and Lorenzo Fertitta, who I'm sure you recognize those names as the owners of the UFC. Well, this is like in the earliest days of UFC, uh, and the, the business they ran was a casino business out of Las Vegas. And uh, I was, you know, I worked with them on financing, you know, their transactions and all these different things for all these years. And one day they brought up to me that they bought a company called UFC which I had no idea what a UFC was. Uh, no lie. I originally, when I heard it, I thought UFC stood for United Furniture Company. I don't know why I thought that. <laughs> it's kind of funny in retrospect. Uh, but they told me, no, it's ultimate fighting. You should watch it. And this was the early days. They had gotten the rules changed by now and it was starting to catch on. And uh, I was so horrified by it that I couldn't stop watching it. And... Um, Anyway, it was just, you know, it became a week and then I would just half the time I would call to talk to him, not about the deals, but about like, you know, let's talk about Chuck Liddell, what a, you know, and all this stuff. So anyway, they, they called me, this is right around the time that I was, uh, kind of in a bad way about my, um, my injury. And they said, well, why don't you try, you know, kickboxing? So they connected me with, uh, uh, um, Somebody in the New York area who was like way over my head. He probably it's Phil Nurse, who you, I'm guessing you probably know who Phil is. Uh, he, he spent time training a lot of UFC fighters, including George St. Pierre. Uh, was way over my head. Now I must say I really enjoyed it, but it was just beating up my body too much. And you know, after six months or so, uh, the progress report I gave him was it's great. It was a great suggestion. It's way you know. I'm back working out again. I'm in good shape, but I'm not sure how long this is going to last. I'm not sure it's for me. And they said, well, and Frank looked at Lorenzo and said, do you think he's ready for jujitsu? <laughs> and uh, I, I said, you know what jujitsu is? I said, yeah, obviously I know what it is. You know, it's the stuff those guys do on the ground. He said, yeah, would you like to try it? And um, I said, yeah, sure. I don't know. I'm an old guy. I was 44 or so at the time. And, uh, anyway, they set me up for a, uh, private lesson with, you know, no lightweight. They, I couldn't, I went straight into the deep pool. They sent me up with, with Henzo Gracie. Oh, wow. And, uh, um, 
you know, first ever lesson is with Henzo. And uh, I loved it. It was clear Henzo wasn't going to really have the time. He lived in New Jersey. You know, he wasn't, this wasn't going to work on a regular basis. I was fortunate enough uh, to then find John Danaher um, in the gym, who became my uh, sensei for several years after that. Um, uh, I'm assuming you know who John is. Yeah, we've had uh, n- numerous members of his team on the show. Yep, uh, Mr. Death Squad himself. But uh, I said to John, while I'm embellishing the story, I said this was the short version, but maybe it was a little longer. I said to John, um, so I, I, need, I clearly needed uh, somebody to train with, and John had seen me, see that Henzo came in to see me, so he figured I must be somebody noteworthy, right? <laughs> so uh, I, I went up to John, and, and I said, you know, I had seen him on the mat. Uh, he was training with Matt Sarah. It was Matt's coach, clearly, and Matt would drive in all the way from Long Island. I knew who Matt Sarah was because this this is when Matt was, uh, you know, in those early years um, of UFC, and they used to call Matt, the announcers used to call Matt the best jiu-jitsu guy in the UFC. Say, wow, the best jiu-jitsu guy in the UFC. I don't know if that was true, but they used to say that. This is the best jiu-jitsu guy in the UFC's coach. How great must this guy be? And and then I watched them on the mat, and it was it was shortly before Matt had Matt Sarah had a fight coming up a week or two later, and he was coming in for his fight camp to train with John, and John was just beating the crap out of him. And I said to myself, first of all, this doesn't make any sense to me that the best guy in the UFC is being beaten up by this guy who who works at in the basement, you know, Henzo Gracie's Academy. But secondly, why is he not? Why is he ruining the guy's confidence in beating him up <laughs> a week before the guy's... Anyway, I, just, I, I, I digress. But um, but uh, anyway, I went up to John and I said, uh, would you consider training me? And he said, sure. Which I, I'm told that he basically says no to everybody, right? Uh, but to me, he said yes, um, clearly because he thought, you know, I was somebody important because I knew Henza. And... Uh, I said, have you ever trained a white belt before? He said, sure, no problem. I said, really, John? My, I have a total of two jujitsu lessons, and I was a runner. I said, I've never done anything like this before. I think I have claustrophobia. <laughs> I'm a basket case. Are you sure you're up for this? Sure, no problem. Which turned out years later to be a quite obvious, complete lie. Uh, I don't think he's ever trained, you know, somebody one-on-one at my, you know, as low a level as me, but, um, and, uh, you know, and just would, um, you know, I'd have the bruises to show for it, but he, uh, boy, did I learn a lot from John. And then I've had the opportunity subsequently to train with my sensei, a guy named Eric Owings, who's, I think John's, I think most prized black belt doesn't compete, but, uh, you know, at one of John's earliest black belts, um, Eddie Cummings, I get to train with, Paul Meow. Uh, I mean, boy, this, this sport has been great to me. You know, just the opportunity to, to uh, learn from all these different styles and these different athletes. Um, it's just been a joy. So what? So when you started training with John, you said you'd been training about 12 years. So I'm guessing that was around 2000, 2002 or 2005 maybe. Um, was he, yeah. Was he teaching you heel hooks then? No, not really. What do you remember about those early days of training with John? That's funny. Um, uh, um, yeah, I, I, I have to think about that. I don't. I don't remember uh, it so well. Um, uh, no, I don't think we had much of a, a leg game back then. It's interesting because I think it was in its infancy. It's fascinating because we've we've had Gordon Ryan and Nikki Ryan and Ethan Krellinston on the podcast, and each of them talk about how John. Uh, is able to find sort of the optimal strategy, even if it's not what everybody else is doing. And sometimes because it's not where everybody else, what everybody else is doing, finding inefficiencies in the system. And so a lot of times I think in jiu-jitsu, we think of people as, oh, that's a leg lock guy or, oh, that's a top game guy. But what's cool about talking to some of John's students is uh, that they say, well, you know, he, he figures out what's going to work for you and to work for you right now. And I'm just wondering if that was your experience. Uh, well, first of all, my experience with John is, despite um, maybe John not being as familiar with with training a beginner, uh, there was no greater experience in the world 
than learning jujitsu from square one from John Denner. Um, I mean, he's probably the greatest mind in the sport. I mean, I, I hopefully that's, uh, I, I'm clearly not the only person that thinks that, uh, I think that's pretty well documented by the successes he has across the sport. And if you've ever had a chance to spend time with him, I think everybody who has would, would, would certainly agree. Uh, boy, what an experience. Um, I also think, uh, you know, that old adage about a black belt is, you know, black belt is, you know, shows a proficiency in understanding jujitsu. It's after that belt is achieved. It's when you start taking the game in your own direction, which I think is true for all great uh, jujitsu practitioners, clearly John. And John has a style which I think encompasses all sorts of styles. I mean, I don't think there's any part of the game that he doesn't do well. But, you know, there's certain things that, you know, I think it's like sort of the, as he calls it, effortless control, which ultimately leading to submissions. And it's just the ability to, you know, control the, your opponent. They don't get their own free will. You know, you control where they go. Or you're giving them a limited set of options on which ways to move and, you know, creating dilemmas at every turn. And that's what John taught me. Um, so whether that culminated in a leg lock or that culminated in... Um, you know, some upper body submission or whatever it was, it almost didn't matter, which is why, you know, when you ask the question, I have to think about it a little bit because clearly the, to the, the way the leg lock game has developed, you know, in recent years um, has, uh, you know, gotten far more intricate and, in, you know, a lot of the technology than, than, than anything we did back then. But, you know, I was such a beginner that, you know, literally anything I learned was, uh, you know, was rapid progress. One of the things that's exciting about what the, the trend you remarked upon earlier, the rapid growth of jiu-jitsu, is you know, even in the time that I've been doing it, you, if you travel, it used to be if you traveled to a random part of America, maybe there'd be a gym, maybe a blue belt would be there, and now there's tons more people doing it. One of the things that I think is exciting about that is the techniques get more intricate and get more evolved. As grapplers get better, people have to go deeper down that well to figure out how to beat guys that are elite, and that's where I think... You know, the, the, that's where I think John Danaher and, some, and, and grapplers like him thrive, where if it's someone that's an intelligent person who spends a lot of time figuring out how to find this, how, how to solve this intellectual puzzle, that's one of the things that I, as a spectator, really find most fascinating. Oh, I agree. Um, the old adage is there's no move that doesn't have a counter, uh, but they're not intuitively obvious, right? So it's... Uh, it's the ability to go deeper than your opponent and, uh, you know, train for all, for all outcomes and for all scenarios. And look, there's no, there's no substitute for a lot of hard work. I mean, the best prepared athletes are usually the ones that do the best. It's probably not unique to jujitsu, but with the literally tens of thousands of different, uh, permutations of different moves, uh, that's to me what makes this sport you know, so much more interesting. It's almost like somebody made the analogy once. Um, I still haven't gotten my head fully around it, but it's like chess meets wrestling or something. Uh, uh, chess meets combat sports. It's, uh, you know, you're playing with much of your head as you're, you're playing with, uh, you know, your, 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 your physicality, maybe even more so with, uh, you know, with your, with your head. So, yeah, I totally agree. So the, you know, it's almost an escalation. The more the technology gets better, the more technology you need to match the technology and so on and so on. Uh, uh, there's not a lot of new things in the sport because, you know, this grappling, you know, and it's all of its, uh, sisters and cousins over the, over the, over the centuries has been around for a long time. But, uh, but I think there's lots of little, uh, there's little nuances to uh, ways to adopt uh, and change movements to, uh, you know, so the sport continues to grow. Uh, and that's, to me, what makes it so exciting. So I completely agree with you. So you've mentioned meeting the Fertitta brothers. You've mentioned training with John Donaher, taking your first private lesson from Henzo. I understand that you also, uh, on your journey, have grappled with some, uh, some prominent members of Middle East royalty. Is that correct? <laughs> it is. So I, uh, I've had the good fortune. Uh, I've been an investment banker for, I don't know, 35 years or something like that. Uh, I have my own firm now where, um, 
uh, not at a bank, but you know, for, but the product of my long career, I've had the ch chance to travel a lot uh, on business. And when I travel, I do my best. It's not always possible, just given schedules and things. But where I can carve out the time, I always try to find you know a way to get in a workout. Sometimes it'll just be you know, at 6 a.m., you know, getting down to the gym in the lobby of the hotel, you know, if nothing else. But hopefully I can find a dojo and train, you know, at night or whatever and just plan my, my uh, work schedule around it. And I've had that great opportunity um, throughout the world. So before we get to the Middle East story, which, uh, which you're, uh, you're right for asking, um, you know, this is true across the U.S., across uh, Asia, Europe, um, Australia, um, uh, I try whenever I remember to take a, a, uh, picture, a selfie or whatever it is with, uh, the professor or whoever I was training with in any of these different gyms. And my daughter was nice enough for a birthday gift to, um, to, uh, go, I, I gave her my, uh, you know, my photo or whatever it's called. And, um, she put together a collage and it's a giant collage and you know, some of the greatest people in the sports Cobrinha, Mendez, you know, you name it, uh, uh, where I've had the chance to train. But you're right. One of the cool ones was uh, we do business in the Middle East, in Abu Dhabi, and I got uh, a great opportunity to train with uh, Sheikh Tanun. Mm -hmm. uh, Sheikh Tanun bin Zayed Al Nayyan, the, uh, you know, the, the, one of the forefathers of uh, the ADCC and all the growth in the sport. Um, he's a terrific guy. Um, Henzo was nice enough to make the introduction. In fact, one of the times I was there, I was there with Henzo and him. Uh, I'll tell you, Henzo is, um, uh, well, let me just say, to train with the Sheikh was an honor. Uh, I didn't know if uh, it was going to work or not. I hadn't heard from him throughout the day. I knew it was being set up. And then sure enough, after my dinner was over, it was about 10 p.m., and I got a call from one of his people that a car is going to be picking me up in a half hour. Would that be okay? And I said, sure. So at 10 30, 11 o'clock, I got in a car, got whisked off to his palace. And, uh, that was one of about a half a dozen times. I had the good fortune to do that, to train around midnight with, uh, with Sheikh Tanun, um, who is an absolute uh, fanatic around the sport. So, and almost every time I've been there, he's had, uh, anywhere from somebody like Jean-Jacques Machado to Paulo and Joao Miao um, and other, you know, like Henzo, other dignitaries. So, uh, boy, has that been a great experience. And the other thing I'll tell you is traveling around the world, I, I learned quickly uh, to, when I introduced myself, because it's not always obvious that they're going to come and, you know, let you train there, uh, wherever it is. And uh, I always make sure to drop Henzo's name first. Because I learned pretty quickly that Henzo is literally the most famous and most beloved person in the sport of jiu-jitsu. Uh, and he has been a mentor to me. And, uh, boy, has he opened a lot of those doors as well. And uh, uh, he's just a rock star. Yeah, everybody loves Henzo. <laughs> and uh, I think you stay in the sport long enough. And, I mean, I, I, you know, if you're lucky enough to encounter Henzo Gracie, you understand why everybody loves him. Well, I've had a good, uh, a good, you know, a great opportunity to have the good fortune to spend uh, some good quality time with Henzo. I consider him a good friend, and uh, I just love the guy. He's hilarious, uh, and certainly one of the most talented jiu-jitsu guys I've ever come across. Mm -hmm. U.S. Grappling is our favorite tournament organization for a lot of reasons. Run by grapplers for grapplers, U.S. Grappling consistently provides the best tournament experience for competitors. Whether it's a points tournament or submission only, and U.S. Grappling runs true no-time-limit submission-only events, it's the best place to compete and to watch your friends compete. Check out upcoming events and register online at usgrappling.com. Like, along that note, I'm always curious, especially someone as well-traveled as you who's been in the sport as long as you have, who are, accepting some of the names that you've already given us, who are some of the toughest people that you've trained with or some of the people that you think are technically the best people that you've trained with? Well, it's funny you ask that. Um, okay, let's, let's talk about it. I'm going to leave out some names. So uh, maybe if anybody's ever listening to this, edit it. So uh, we can edit a few in later when I, when I remember who I forgot. But um, uh, first of all, 
I don't think anything compares with John Denner. Nothing. Uh, and um, I can't describe the feeling of not having control over your own movements. Um, almost maybe it's something like paralysis. <laughs> it might be the closest uh, uh, comparison. But, but uh, as far as control of your opponent, nothing I've ever experienced like John Denner. Um, other styles. Uh, as far as ability to rapid fire submissions, I get the good opportunity to train with Eddie Cummings uh, frequently. Um, that is extraordinary. Eddie's technical knowledge of, of the lower body, by the way, as well as the upper body, is like nothing I've ever seen. Uh, and it's not just with me. I mean, I, I've been with Eddie where he's showing up at some gyms, you know, to train. And, you know, well, he's always gracious enough to anybody that wants to roll with him, to let roll with him. Biggest, best guys in the gym, five-minute rounds, you know, probably averages five, six, seven, eight taps, you know, per round, regardless of belt. Uh, so as far as just ability just to submit, 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 you know, Eddie... Uh, I haven't had as much experience with some of the other Danaher Death Squad folks. Uh, Eddie's the one that I train with the most. So, you know, you're asking me for my personal experiences. You know, on the subject of unity, uh, of course, uh, Marillo Santana, who has been a friend, a confidant, and frankly has been one of the visionaries behind the creation of Kasai, somebody that we've uh, we've talked to strategically about how to how to build and run a tournament. And uh, there's nobody in the sport. Uh, there's very few people in the sport that I respect, uh, like I respect Marilla. Same, I uh, mentioned him earlier, but Eric Owings. Eric is my sensei. Uh, Eric uh, and I are partners in Machine. Uh, Machine is our gym. Uh, we do uh, jujitsu as well as uh, striking and some uh, CrossFit type uh, full body conditioning. But really, the the jujitsu. Um, and submission grappling uh, vibe in the gym has really pervaded all the other aspects. Eric's the visionary of all that. Um, he's an extraordinary guy. He's been my partner in the gym and in its predecessors, I don't know, for about eight, eight or nine years. Um, he's one of the best black belts I've ever, I've ever trained with and uh, certainly one of the best jujitsu and uh, fitness minds uh, out there. And um, Eric is going to be in the front row of the Kasai tournament, and he's contributed to many, many, many aspects of what the tournament has and will become. I get the, I have the opportunity to train with uh, Paulo Miao, uh, and very intentional. Well, clearly, you know, I think his reputation speaks for itself. But at my age, um, and I'm 56, uh, I can't. I'm not going to survive in the sport with a game of trying to go through people. I'm not going to win. The, I'm not the biggest. I'm certainly not the strongest and I'm definitely not the youngest. So, um, I'm constantly looking for ways to, uh, you know, to exploit technique to, you know, go around as opposed to through. Um, and you might think of it as a younger man's game, the whole Baron Bolo game, but it's not. And I wasn't particularly flexible, but I certainly worked at it. And, you know, developing, you know, somewhat of the technique uh, that I've been able to drill so many times with Paulo, uh, you know, he has a mastery of, of, you know, his game. Of probably, he's developed such an all-around game that it'd be unfair to label him as, as having a game. But, you know, in the whole Barambola world, that's where I spend the most time with Paulo because I really, you know, really wanted to incorporate that into my game. But uh, certainly for what he does. Another example I'll give you, I've only had the, the opportunity three times in my life on trips to California, but I've, I've done private lessons with Hoffa Mendez. Um, and... Uh, he did that thing to me where, you know, I sat, uh, I sat in, uh, um, in butterfly guard and he stood and, you know, did his dance <laughs> left, right, left, right. And, you know, passing me at will. I mean, I, I literally had ab abdominal failure trying to keep up with, uh, you know, following him in all directions. I, I never seen anything like that. I mean, uh, I just don't have the day to day, uh, 
humiliation of having to train with Hoffa to be able to compare him to some of these other guys. But, you know, clearly I assume he'd be on anybody's list. But I've had the chance to train with Cobrinha, Jean-Jacques. Um, I mean, all these guys are extraordinary. Extraordinary. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just been a blessing for me to, to have that opportunity, which is why uh, seeing, you know, create, you know, back to our original topic, creating a tournament and putting guys like this on the stage, boy, is that exciting. I can only imagine. And let me just say briefly, I am 43 and I'm known sometimes derisively in North Carolina as the Barambolo guy. So uh, it makes me really happy <laughs> that you got the chance to train that with Paulo Mia, one of the you know outstanding practitioners of the Barambolo, as well as a tremendous all-around all around jiu-jitsu practitioner. Oh, for sure. Uh, but maybe the next big thing uh, is Barambolo meets leg locks. I if I ever train. figure it, if I ever master it, I'll write a book, and you'll be the first guy I call. I appreciate it. You'll have to you'll have to show me some of those things because wow, I'm, it kind of makes me want to go train right now. So, so I just have a couple of of, of more questions about uh, which is like, one sort of a vision thing question, which is let's say we're five years down the road, what and and you look back and you've considered Kasai a success. Like five years down the road, everything has gone the way you planned. What does Kasai look like, and what does the competitive and spectator jiu-jitsu landscape look like if everything works out the way that you want it to? Well, um, hopefully, what, what we end up with is uh, a tournament that, as I've talked about, builds a fan base. Uh, builds a fan base. First of all, I think the, the jiu-jitsu practitioner fan base is going to grow organically. But, but hopefully something that not only grows with that fan base, but grows... You watch a UFC event, I'm pretty sure 90-plus percent of the people sitting in the audience aren't MMA fighters. You know, to be able to build a fan base beyond people that do the sport because, you know, you make it exciting, understandable, and, uh, and production value is as good as anything else they watch in any other sport. You know, that's the idea. Uh, and if we can achieve that, we're going to do it one tournament at a time, but... I think I have the opportunity to create a sport that becomes a lot more mainstream. Uh, and if there's ever a sport deserving of that attention, I, not just because I'm biased because I do it and I love it, but just because of the attributes of the sport, the quality of the athletes, etc. I think there's no more deserving sport than this one to, uh, to get that spotlight. And that's what we're hoping because I, you know, ultimately becomes multiple tournaments per year um, uh, you know, crowning champions at different weight classes, you know, in each tournament, you know, rotating that around the different weight classes, super fights of some of the greatest guys in the world. Um, you know, we'd like, uh, and you know, we'd like our promotion to become ambassadors for the sport. Simply said, uh, I've been around the sport for a long time. I think we have a chance with Kasai to, uh, to, to put on a promotion that's different, exciting, cool, um, uh, and um, and just be part of the evolution of the sport. Uh, we're going to do it the old-fashioned way by investing in the business. Um, that's anything from the production to the venues to the to you know and everything in between. Uh, treating the fighters well. Um, uh, hopefully that will that word of mouth. And the exposure that the athletes get will lead to, uh, you know, to grow and grow and grow. As we always say, you only get one chance to make a good first impression. And uh, December 9th is our first impression. Uh, and we're going to, we plan to be around for a long time. So we, uh, you know, we want to put on the best possible show and, um, and stay with us because after December 9th, there's going to be a lot of cool things up our sleeves that we're going to roll out over our upcoming tournaments. But we think we've had the way to create the most exciting tournament uh, in, the, in the format we've come up with. Uh, if there's something better, we're all ears. Uh, but for now, we'd like to give this a whirl. And um, we think we've come up with something great. We're really gratified that we've gotten athletes, the, uh, the quality of the athletes that have come to our tournament. Um, uh, we're very pleased with, um, as you said, these are some of the best 155 pound guys in the world. And uh, we're going to put on a hell of a show. And uh, uh, we're 
super excited about, you know, getting this off the ground. It's been a long time coming. We've got a great team. Hollis Gracie is running day-to-day operations. He's the president. Uh, couldn't have a better guy than Hollis in that seat. Not only has he competed around the world and um, certainly jiu-jitsu is in his blood, but he is uh, one of the great, you know, a great businessman. Just the ability to promote and create and his relationships with fighters is, is a big part of the reason why we got a card that's as good as it is. Who doesn't love Hollis? Um, and, you know, he's a great partner and uh, really uh, a lot of the backbone and the vision behind what Kasai is. Uh, Ken Gelman, one of our other partners, is our chief operating officer. Ken's got experience uh, in M- MMA promotions um, uh, throughout the world as well as other sports. Uh, he's the day-to-day guy behind all those little things that take place around and before and after the fights take place. It's all those meat and potatoes that you need uh, operationally to put on a great show, and we want to make sure we have the best guy in the business to do that. And then lastly, the other the other key member of our team is Aiden. Um, Aiden O'Connor. Aiden is uh, our chief marketing officer, and uh, he's, uh, he's the guy behind all the viral social media, website, and other things that uh, we're starting to catch fire. So I um, feel like we have the dream dream team, and uh, we're super excited, and hopefully it's all up from here. Well, we're super excited to see not just what happens on December 9th with your inaugural pro tournament, but everything cool that you have planned after that. We're really excited to, uh, to see where Kasai goes, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. My pleasure. So I hope that got you excited for Kasai. We'll, of course, give you full coverage both on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash cagesideradio, on our blog at dirtywhitebelt.com, and on a future podcast. But I really hope you're able to check it out. If you do decide you want to support our sponsored athletes who've both been on the show several times, you can use the hashtags I'm with Junie and Shock of the World to support Junie Ocasio. Or you can talk about Caitlin Huggins under the hashtag Queen of Kasai. This event promises to be one of the best of the year, and we're really excited to see how it goes. This has been another episode of Dirty White Belt Radio. My name is Jeff Shaw. My co-hosts are Lotus Cantu and Betsy O'Donovan. I'd like to take a moment to thank our Patreon supporters. You can join them by supporting the show for as little as a dollar a month. If you contribute at a higher amount, you can get a shout-out on the podcast, too. So many thanks to Betty Broadhurst, Chris Holmes, Cody Malte, and Carl Krebs, who contributed at that level this month. This is Dirty White Belt Radio. My name is Jeff Shaw, and we will see you all next week.